0: That's stamps.com. Code program.
1: I'm Afua Hirsch.
2: I'm Peter Frankopan.
1: And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history.
2: This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra.
1: An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra.
2: Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose.
1: Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.
2: Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History. This is a very special podcast, one of my favourite podcasts I've ever, ever broadcast. Uh, It's a repeat of a podcast I recorded back a couple of years ago now, when the legendary, the legendary Alfred Warden, was in the UK. Now, very, very sadly, he died on the 18th of March this year, in 2020. He was a fighter pilot. He was a test pilot. And he was also a NASA pilot. He flew to the moon with the Apollo missions. He was on Apollo 15. And he told me what that was like. It was one of those experiences that I will never forget. In fact, I will take it to the grave. And I've told my kids and Everybody else I know all about it. And the best thing about having a podcast is you guys can all listen to it too. He flew to the moon on Apollo fifteen with David Scott and James Irwin. The two of them went then went in the lunar module and landed on the moon's surface. Al Warden spent three days alone in the command module. In the process of that, he became the individual who's traveled further than any other human being in the history of mankind. A distinction that he still holds. He took lots of extraordinary photographs of the moon. And then on the way, this is the most amazing. On the way back, he performed a spacewalk, but not one of these spacewalks that you see in the International Space Station that is in orbit around the Earth. He performed a deep space space spacewalk. So he could see the whole of the moon and the Earth at the same time as he did his spacewalk in deep space. It is the spacewalk to this day that has taken place furthest from the Earth. As NASA and SpaceX have combined this week to send astronauts to the space, into space uh, together for the first time in a while, I thought it'd be nice to rerun this podcast with the brilliant Al Warden. You can watch the documentary I made with him and many other documentaries at History Hit TV. It's like a Netflix for history. You head over to historyhit.tv, use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, and then you get a month for free and your second month for just one pound, euro or dollar. Please, please go and check that out. But in the meantime, enjoy the wonderful Al Warden May you rest in peace. You were a fighter pilot. Did Correct. You, what gave you the first inkling that you could apply for this this space program?
3: Actually, it was when NASA had an application program. Um, I was following my career as a test pilot and teaching at the test pilot school. Uh, never gave NASA a thought, but they had an application program that came out in you know, I think December of, uh, 65. And I thought, what the heck, I'll just throw my name in and see what happens. Cause I had lots and lots of squares filled, if you will, by then. Uh, so I threw my name in, there were 830 of us that were qualified by the minimum standards and they picked 19 of us. Um, the paperwork study or the paperwork review of our, of our careers up to that point, like efficiency reports, health, uh, our, our physical reports and that kind of thing, uh, that cut the list down to seventy-five. That seventy-five went to a in, an Air Force hospital in San Antonio, Texas, uh, to get physical exams, and then from there that was cut down to fifty. That fifty went to Houston and did uh, uh, written and 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 audible. We we actually met a board and answered questions and that kind of thing. And out of that they picked nineteen of us. Uh, but I never gave it a thought before then. I, I knew there was a space program. Uh, I actually I had. I had entered my name uh, back in 1964 when they had a selection, uh, but I was uh, but I was already committed to coming to England to go to the Empire Test Pilot School, so they said no, 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 we can't we can't touch that. So I missed that one, uh, and then I left Empire Test Pilot School, went back to Edwards to teach at the Test Pilot School, and they had another selection program. It was kind of interesting because the age limit was 35, and I was rapidly getting to 35, and I'm thinking oh, I'm just never going to make it, you know. Uh, but they had the selection program while well, I was still early. I had just turned thirty-four, and uh, so I put my name in. Lo well, and behold, I got in.
2: Why did they pick you?
3: Well, I think a lot of it was because I had a I, I had a pretty extensive engineering background. Uh, I had three master's degrees from the University of Michigan. I only needed three more hours of study to get a master's in math, so I was kind of well up on on the, the academic side. As a matter of fact, I came to the Empire Test Pilot School because of my academic background. They, they sent me here uh, because of that. And I ended up doing very well at the Empire Test Pilot School. And then I got selected to come back early. I was supposed to go to Bedford uh, on a two-year tour when I left the uh, Empire Test Pilot School. Uh, but they, they, they cut all that short and brought me back so I could teach at the Test Pilot School.
2: But, but, were, they, but were they looking for CV? Were they looking for boxes ticked? Or were they looking for character?
3: Oh, I think it's a little of each. Uh, when we met the board uh, down in Houston, the board was uh, comprised of uh, like three astronauts and a couple of the uh, of the uh, support type crews, the management people. Like I think, I guess there were by maybe ten people on the board, and they talked to all of us. And um, I happened to have uh, uh, several friends on the board uh, that certainly didn't hurt. Mike Collins was probably. My my biggest supporter on the board, and I think he was very instrumental in making sure that I got selected. I think I would have been selected without him, uh, because as it turned out, I ended up pretty high on the list uh, because of my academic and test pilot background. I had all of that that they were looking for. I was under the age limit. I was under the height limit. I was in good physical shape. I was uh, twenty ten. I my eyes were twenty ten at the time. Um, you know, I was the perfect candidate that they needed and. We had in in my group of 19, well let me let me back up just a little bit. The minimum requirement was a thousand hours of bachelor's degree in in one of the engineering sciences, uh, and a thousand hours of flight time, um, under thirty five, under six feet tall, it could pass the physical. Those were the kind of the minimum requirements. And the way it turned out, once they selected the 19, I would say the average academic Uh, uh, level uh, was at least a master's degree. We had like uh, two PhDs in my group. Um, There was only maybe two guys out of the 19 that were not test pilots. So everybody kind of fit in that mold of academic background and test pilot training. Um, There were lots of others who are minimally qualified but you know it's like any job you go to. You can apply for any job and there might be 100 people that apply for it but they're only two or three that are, 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 are ahead or above the others that are going to be pretty much the target group.
2: Al, as you're talking, I'm feeling worse and worse about myself. Every single one of those minimum requirements you just mentioned, I now fail. <laughs> Every single one. So thanks very much for
3: that. No, don't so, feel bad about that. Um, you're, you're, you didn't want to be, a th- you're too tall anyway. That's what I mean. So, yeah, okay, right. so
2: why did you, you, you said you applied more than once. I mean, you were pumped about this. Was there a feeling that this was the way everything was going? If you want to reach the pinnacle of your career, it involved going to space.
3: Well, we, we felt back in the day that being an astronaut was the pinnacle of a flying career. Uh, and probably the greatest day I ever had in my life was when I got a call from Deke Slayton, who was one of the original seven guys, who was the director of flight crew operations, and he called me on the phone and said, we'd like you to come down in Houston and join us, and that was probably the greatest day of my life. And I felt that way until I walked into the astronaut office down in Houston, and I was given a ration of truth. The guys who were there who made flights um, didn't take well to us. Well, we're new guys. We don't know anything. And so we're the gophers. We go get coffee and we sweep the floors and we do that kind of thing when you first get there. And it's like everything you do in life, you go to school and then you go to college. And when you go to your first, first time in college, when you go as a freshman or whatever, you feel so overwhelmed because all these other people are all up there, juniors and seniors, and they're, you know, they're way ahead of you. and you, It's very intimidating until you've been there a while and you get adjusted to all that and you say, hey, I'm as good as them so I can do okay. I felt the same way when, when I went to West Point. Um, I, I, I was in awe of the other cadets who, were, who went to West Point at the same time. Until I'd been there a couple of months and I realized, hey, those guys are just like me. There's no big deal there. Just do your thing, keep your nose clean, work hard, and you'll be okay. And I was. So the astronaut office was the same kind of thing. You get there and you are the slime on the floor to the guys who have already flown. Um, and it takes a while to get we we really spent a lot of time in the classroom that first year. And once you get through that and you get assigned as a support crew engineering, I was support crew engineering on Apollo 9 and my my responsibility was a docking tunnel between the lunar module and the command module and I and I and I did that and 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 gradually the older guys begin to accept you um and once you get assigned to a backup crew then you're part of the group you're not really an astronaut though until you made a flight
2: but that's my that's my question is you can train on your fighter jet you could train you even if you weren't in combat you could do very realistic training s- simulations you can't, but you can't, how do you train for a mission into space without actually going to space? How do you create realistic training?
3: Well, yeah, it's very different from flying an airplane. If, I, if I'm if i training in an airplane, I get in the front seat and the instructor gets in the back seat. You go up and you fly and you do all kinds of things. You come back and you make a bunch of landings and you learn how to land it and the instructor walk, talks you through it. And then you just do that. That's how you train is you just fly and like an hour and a half at a time and you make landings and you do this and do that. Spaceflight first time you go is it you only got that one shot so you have to train in a different way uh you you cannot fly an apollo spacecraft with an instructor to find out how to fly it right you got to do it the first time so we had simulators that were absolutely spectacular uh the the only thing they lacked was the motion and we spent countless hours over a three-year period training for my flight uh i spent about 1500 hours in a in a simulator now if you figure that a normal working year is 2000 hours which is kind of generally accepted 500 hours a year that's 25 percent of your time you're sitting in a simulator the rest of the time you're in a classroom you're doing geology field trips you're flying you're doing this you're doing that making public appearances around um but that simulation is the biggest block of time you spend getting ready for a flight. And those simulators were absolutely superb. Uh, I don't think there was anything except for the lack of gravity in flight, but everything else was perfectly as we had trained in a simulator.
2: How did it feel making backup? Were you pleased to do that or were you sad you didn't make the, make the full team?
3: Oh, as a, as a backup, that's the step. That's your step up. Uh, uh, you have to be assigned to a backup before you can get assigned to a flight. That was the normal rotation in the in the program back then. As a matter of fact, I was support crew on nine, backup on twelve, prime crew on fifteen. So it's three flights down the line is is how that, that would go back in the day. Uh, once you get assigned to a backup, unless you mess up some way, uh, you're g when that when that crew that you're backup to has made their flight, then you get announced as the third flight down. So there was 13, 14, and then fifteen, we get ass- we we got we got announced in December after Apollo 12 came back. So we had another year and a half of training to do uh, to get ready for 15.
2: So, so you kind of knew you were going into space oh, yeah. when you were announced as backup. Was that the big, what, what was the big moment for you?
3: Um, well, the big moment, of course, you can be backup and you never know until you are announced on that crew, the prime crew. You, you, there's always a chance that something could change. Uh, so the the really big time is the is the time you you, you get told by Deke Slayton, um, we're going to announce publicly next week that you're going to be on a crew of 15. And once they make that public announcement, you know, you're you're kind of there unless you mess up. You're you're, you're going to be there. You're going to be OK. And
2: what was that moment like? What was that moment like?
3: Oh, that was almost as good as getting the call from Deke to say, would you like to come and join us? That's your second big one. The problem is, a year and a half away from flight, everything is peachy keen, can do anything. We're gonna gonna max this thing, we're gonna kill it. It's gonna be a piece of cake, it's gonna be easy to do. As you get closer to a flight, you begin to rethink all of that. And it's sort of like the day before the flight, you say to yourself, what the hell am I doing? Why am I here? And then you realize that it would be it would take a lot more courage to back out of a flight at the last minute than it would be to go. So you strap yourself in and go. You got no choice at that point. So in, in the week
2: leading up to it, if someone had offered you a way out, would you have taken
3: it? No, 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 no way. We had developed kind of um, what I think of as a far eastern mentality that making a space flight like we were going to do was much more important than us. There's a there's a there's a bigger calling out there. There's a bigger thing that we're responsible for than just us. So we didn't worry about it. If we didn't come back, you know, there's a there's an old joke about it. if you don't come back from a space flight, at least your name's going to be in the history books forever. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's going to be a lot of, a, a lot, uh, <laughs> that's going to be a lot of joy for the guy that's there, you know. Um, but I would say we developed a mentality that was sort of like, I don't care if I don't come back.
2: Is that tough for your families because you're basically saying to your families yeah, this it's... means more than you guys
3: well i well i i was divorced at the time i was a bachelor it the was kind, you of, to go into space. kind of kind of kind of funny because my two daughters were in mission control during my flight and um there are some pictures in life magazine back in the day that show them sitting in mission control one of them is sleeping the other's yawning so they're not terribly excited about what i'm doing but you see, they're the next generation and they're growing up in a community of all astronauts and astronaut families. So everybody's kind of in the same boat. And so it's no, it's kind of like a whole home thing to them. They didn't they didn't really worry about it too much. It must have been tough saying goodbye to them though. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. But I I knew I'd be coming back. I wasn't worried about that. The only thing I have to say about that is that we kind of gave our lives up on launch. Uh, we kind of said to ourselves, "We're probably not going to come back," uh, but I'm okay with that. I'm comfortable with that, provided we do something that's good. Um, and the second thought that comes right after that is, if we if that happens on our flight, the only thing I'm hoping I, I'm you know I'm I'm concerned about is that I don't make a mistake that causes it. You want to make sure that you're not the cause of an accident that costs you your life. Uh, outside of that, if something mechanical happens, if something else happens, you know, you don't come back. Then you don't come back.
2: What was it in, in the build-up in the training, the final bits of training? What is the thing that you you were you guys were trying to get just right? What is the the main area you're concentrating on?
3: Geology. You see, the first year and a half of training, when I was back up crew on twelve, uh, I trained almost exclusively on the equipment, the system, the, the command module how to maneuver, how to do everything that I need to do on a flight. That's, that's kind of the major part of the training that first year and a half. The second year and a half, see I trained for three years for the flight, so the second year and a half after Apollo 12 had flown, we focused on the science that we we're gonna do and we studied geology and I did uh, extensive photography training. Um, geology was kind of split into two pieces Dave and Jim were going to be on the surface picking up rocks. So their geology was kind of what I'll call microgeology. What does a rock look like? Can you see a crystal in it? Is there, you know, that kind of thing, up close and personal. My geology was what I call macro geology because I'm looking at large features like impact, meteor impact craters, volcanic activity, lava flows, um, kind of observing... Uh, how the uh, how the the the, the uh, large expanse of the moon's surface was formed, and of course there, there were there were there were all kinds of discussions going on about that at the time. So our observations helped clear up some of the mysteries about the moon. As an example, uh, one of my primary tasks when I was in orbit by myself uh, was to look for cinder cones. Cinder cones are kind of a last gasp of a volcano when it erupts, and it's the light fluff that comes up at the last, and, and it goes up and then it falls back down, and it forms a cone over the funnel. And you can see these here on Earth, they're, they're all over. Any, any place there's volcanic activity, you'll see these things. Um, and, I, and I actually saw a field of these. Now, they were, I was told that I, I, I probably wouldn't be able to see them because your eye can only distinguish a certain angle. Um, but what I found out was that if I scanned the area, like night blindness, if you scan and you don't use, I forget what it's the rods or the cones or whatever, but if I scanned the area, then I could pick out small features. Um, and I found this whole field of cinder cones. And I took some high-resolution pictures of it because I had a fabulous high-resolution camera on board. And uh, when, when all that data got analyzed back in Houston... Uh, they actually changed the landing site for Apollo 17 to go to that area. So those observations were important. So this is the kind of thing, and I took a lot of photography. I could tell you all about the low light level photography that I took, which was the most fascinating thing to me of all. Uh, I had a a Nikon camera, specially made. Uh, It had a 1.01 lens, which is almost perfect transmission. And I carried film. I, not too many of us remember back to the film days, uh, but you know, when you when you had a camera that had film in it, you would go out and buy a film that was like ASA three hundred or four hundred something like that. I had film that was ASA five thousand. I could take a picture on a dark night, and it would come out and look like daylight. It was absolutely Eastman Kodak really went to bat for that. So I carried this very, very sensitive film in a Nikon camera that had almost perfect transmission through the lens, and I took pictures of what we call low light level phenomena. Um, From an an astronomical point of view, uh, one of the things that I focused on was a thing called the Gegenshine. Uh, Not too many people know the Gegenshine, but beyond Pluto, there is a, 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 a ring of unconsolidated material that never coalesced into a planet. And it's small meteors, it's small asteroids that are out there and they're floating around and they're in orbit around the sun. And the only thing you can see, you can't see it itself, but you can see if you're in the right spot at the right time, you can see a reflection of the sun off that ring back there. And the only place here on Earth you could even have a chance of seeing it is on top of a mountain in Chile. Well, with this very sensitive film, we figured, yeah, we could, we could get that, and we did. The other thing that we looked at was uh, a, a Lagrange point. Um, the Lagrange points uh, between the Earth and the Moon are, are, are equilibrium points. And there are three of them in the, uh, off the center line of the Earth and the Moon, one behind the Moon, one behind the Earth, and one in the middle. And then there are two offset, that's L4 and L5. There is a very large organization in the States called the L5 Society, and they would really like to utilize L5 uh, for all kinds of things. L5 is a positively stable location in space all by itself. And it's positively stable because of the rotation of the Earth and the moon and the Earth and the moon around the sun. And that all adds up to make this, if you throw something into it, it'll stay there forever, okay? The idea was that if that is in fact the truth, nobody had ever seen one. No nobody ever I mean it was all theoretical. Yeah. Um if that was the case, then there should be a cloud of dust at L 5 yeah. because it's gonna collect stuff from, you know, the atmosphere. Yeah. Um so I got pictures of L five. And it was and there. That, the dust was there. Yeah, it was dust. Yeah, a big cloud of dust. Yeah. L five would be the perfect place to launch to Mars. That's that's yeah. see, that's the key to something like that. Yeah. I think we've all We've all probably all watched Star Trek. And if you remember some of the episodes in Star Trek where they had to come back and resupply and do maintenance work, where did they go? Well, they went to a warehouse or a a, a repair station in space. Had to be L5. So that's what L5 would be good for.
2: Let's. I need to take you back because we're getting too excited here. Let's, <laughs> let's go back to the launch. your okay. you're, you're, How do you get to the How do you get to the rocket for that final trip? You, you walk? I, I, is there a vehicle? How do you get to the rocket on the big day?
3: Oh, okay. Well, we were in crew quarters. We had been in crew quarters for a month in isolation.
2: Why? Uh, Why isolate? Just so you don't get distracted.
3: Okay. okay. Well, if you remember back on Apollo Eleven and Twelve. Uh, they put him in quarantine after the flight, and that was because we want to make sure that they didn't pick up some bugs or something on the way. Um, on Apollo 13, we had to change the command module pilot out because they suspected Ken Mattingly, who was assigned to that flight, they expect they they suspected he had German measles, so they put Jack Swigert in Apollo 13. Uh, because of that episode, they and they realized in the meantime that we're not bringing any bugs back. So they said, well, you know, we've got to protect these guys to make sure they're okay on launch day. So we went in quarantine uh, uh, a month before the flight. Uh, the day of flight, we, we got up, it's kind of a funny little thing. We got up uh, early in the morning. Dick Slayton was there, our boss, and he came, woke us up. And um, we went through a little routine. Uh, the routine was we go to the bathroom and give them a little sample which is kind of funny because uh, we never knew what they were gonna do with it. Uh, But they got their little sample. And uh, then we went down to see the flight surgeon. We got our final little physical check. Then we went down to the room down the hall where we got a haircut. I had never quite figured out what that was all about. Why were they giving us a haircut when we're not gonna see anybody for two weeks, you know? But we got a haircut. So we went down to the dining room and had our last breakfast, which is a low residual breakfast. Then we went down to the suit room, put on those suits. We started pre-breathing pure oxygen because if we lost cabin pressure on the way to orbit, we'd be susceptible to the bends just like deep sea divers do. So we pre-breathed pure oxygen. We carried little uh, portable oxygen containers with us. We walked down the hall, elevator down to the ground, got in a van, and the van drove us out to the launch pad when we got out there, we got an elevator, went up to the platform, the uh, launch, uh, um, launch uh, that, that mobile launch platform, got up to the top of that, walked around the spacecraft to another elevator and went to the 35th floor, which is where our spacecraft was.
2: And is your heart thumping or has the training prepared you for this moment?
3: Yeah, we'd, we'd been through that uh, dozens of times. Uh, it was kind of fun that day uh, because it was for real. Um, uh, but I can't remember getting overly excited. It was just you, you know you can mentally you can put yourself back in training and you say, well this is another kind of training thing. And you get up there and you get in the spacecraft. And then when they close the hatch and they put the heat shield on and and and, and your um, ground crew uh, gets in the elevator, they go down. They drive their cars three and a half miles away. Then you realize that hey, <clears throat> this is going to happen. <laughs> yeah, here we go. And was that was there um, fun like conversation there, or is it all totally professional? Yeah, no, nah, we had very little conversation. Uh, we as a crew didn't talk much anyway. Uh, we were not bonded uh, that tight. Uh, Dave and Jim did most of their training on their own because they were doing lunar module and they were doing all the ground stuff, and I was kind of on my own. So we never became uh, a family, if you will. Now, which is different from Apollo Twelve, Pete Conrad. Dick Gordon and Al Bean were like three brothers. They were three peas in a pod. You never saw one without the other two. You never saw one of their cars without the other two. Uh, we were not quite like that. We were, we, we were different. And in fact, um, I would have to say that um, Dave and I professionally worked extremely well together, but we were not good friends. And so it was very easy not to say anything. And so we sat there in the spacecraft. Uh, it was dark. Uh, they had it chilled down to 45 degrees. Uh, because that was one of the abort modes would would, would be very high heating rates on the spacecraft. Yeah. So they chilled us down inside so that we'd be okay. Yeah. Um, there was very little chatter on the radio. The only thing I heard at the time, yeah. we had an inverter down in the corner of the, of the spacecraft that made a little noise. It was just, you know, kind of an electronic converter. Yeah. Made a little humming noise. And that was it. Um, and to be honest with you, Jim and I went to sleep. So how long are you on the ground for? We were there two and a half hours, we slept about 45 minutes. 15 minutes before flight they woke us up and we did our final checks and off we went. It's easy. We didn't even know we were off the ground, as a matter of fact, because on my flight we had the heaviest flight in the program. We were almost seven million pounds on liftoff and we were lifted off the ground with seven and a half million pounds of thrust. So the weight was almost equal to the thrust and we lifted off first, we didn't even know it. The ground had to tell us we were on our way. Um, and it took us 13 and a half minutes to get into orbit Compare that to the shuttle the shuttle jumps off the launch pad rather quickly Because the shuttle has the same thrust, but it only weighs 4 million pounds. We weighed seven So it's a whole different thing. It took us a long time to get to get to orbit
2: And, and is it, is it
3: physical? I mean, can you feel it? Is it you not at first you can't? um, I tell people it's kind of like the launch itself right off the pad. is a little bit like driving a car with an automatic transmission. You come to a stoplight, and you stop. You put your foot on the brake. And then when the light changes, you take your foot off the brake, but you don't put it on the accelerator. What happens? You start creeping, and you go a little faster and a little faster. And that's how we got off the launch pad. We didn't even know it. It was really weird.
2: And what can you see? Are there, are there windows? Nothing. Nothing.
3: We're, we're all tucked inside. Um there's one little window that you could see out of but it was worthless uh, so basically until we lost the heat shield which is up around oh well, maybe a hundred thousand feet uh, until we got rid of the see the heat shield went off with our um, uh, with our abort launch system which is a rocket that was stuck out the nose and if we had to abort that would pull us up high enough uh, off, even off the launch pad so that we could come back down to earth on the parachutes Uh, until we got rid of the abort launch system, which was attached to the heat shield that was around the front of our spacecraft. Once that was gone, then all the windows opened up and we could see. What was that like? Oh, fantastic. Uh, In fact, I still think back about it. We went into orbit. We we didn't really do much looking until we got to orbit because you're too busy looking at making sure everything's right. Once we got into orbit, it was like every man for himself, get unbuckled as fast as you can and get to a window. And you got to look out, and you got to you got to see the Earth going by. Don't you? and you got to get the TV camera out and start taking pictures. You got to do this, you got to do that, and you completely forget where you are and what you're doing until ground control, mission control, I should say, um, they start getting rather severe, <laughs> uh, getting us back on our flight plan so that we, to make sure we got all the final checks before we went to the moon. But that first that that first inclination when you get into orbit is to go to a window and watch the Earth go by. Amazing.
1: Make sure to get every episode
2: by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which to get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: So I'm not a scientist. How do you fly around? It's like when you're in orbit, are you just being held in orbit? And when do, then do you have to just turn right and put the accelerator on and go for it?
3: You're going to have to get my lecture. Uh-oh. Uh, it's, it's pretty simple, actually. Let's say I got a, a small stone and I'm up on the, top of a tower and I drop the stone and it goes straight down. What people don't realize is that that stone is on a trajectory, an orbit, around the center of gravity of the Earth. It happens, the Earth happens to get in the way and it hits the Earth, okay? But if the Earth weren't there, it would be going down to the center of gravity and back up again. It would be in orbit. If I throw it out a little ways, the only thing that happens is, is that that orbit, gets, instead of going straight up and down, that orbit begins to look oblong, okay? And, uh, and, and, and the stone is going to go out of ways, still going to go towards the center of gravity, still going to orbit around the center of gravity and come back up again. Now, if I throw that stone at 17,500 miles an hour, still trying to do the same thing, except that when it's trying to get back to the center of gravity of the Earth, the Earth is going out underneath it. So you never get back to Earth. You just go around it but it's exactly the same idea.
2: I understand, that's amazing. So you, you're you in orbit a NASA like, guys, come on, let's go. I mean, could you just choose when you wanted to go to the moon?
3: No, 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 we were very, we were on a very, very tight timeline. Because of the weight that we had, the mass that we had in our flight, we couldn't go to a safe altitude uh, that would allow us the, the 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 pleasure, if you will, of deciding when we want to go. We could only get up to 90 miles. We didn't have enough fuel on board to go higher than that. Um, if, if, if you were to look at the at the launch altitude of most flights, even the shuttle, you're looking at 120, 130, 140 miles. We could only go to 90 miles. There's enough atmosphere, the molecules in the atmosphere enough to hit us and slow us down. So we only had maybe six or seven revolutions around the earth before we were slowing down to the point where we'd have to come back and then. So we had a limited time to get everything squared away to go to the moon. We actually did it in one and a half revolutions. Uh, That would be about two and a half hours. We came up over Hawaii the second time and fired our third stage engine to get us the velocity. Now I'm gonna go back to the gravity thing, because now, instead of trying to get back to the center of gravity of the Earth, we're gonna raise that orbit higher and higher and higher and higher. We're still trying to get back to the center of gravity of the Earth. Until we reach a point where the moon's gravity became greater than the earth's gravity and that captured us and then we would go around the backside of the moon So we were under the influence of the moon's gravity at that point not the earth. That's how you get to the moon
2: And how long was that trip then?
3: It's about three and a half days going on.
2: How much sleep did you do?
3: First night, I didn't get a whole lot of sleep um, Because it's different. We don't think about it very much We take gravity kind of for granted but gravity does a lot of things for us. For instance, when you go to bed at night, you put your head on a pillow. What keeps it there? Gravity. Okay? When you're out there, you don't have that gravity working. You're still under the influence of gravity, but but you, but you the centrifugal force is, is balancing gravity. So you're floating. What happens is, as you try to go to sleep, your head kind of gets a mind of its own and it starts wandering around on you. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing that'll wake you up faster than that. It's, it's like, and I think most people have had this feeling, if you've ever been in bed and all of a sudden had this feeling like falling off a cliff, I know a lot of people have had that. Well, see, that's exactly what we were doing, was falling off that cliff. We were in free fall. Uh, that woke me up four or five times the first night. Uh, and I had to figure out a way to stabilize my head so that it wouldn't wander around on me what and and then that only then could I go to sleep. The second night was a little better and the third night I didn't need anything. I I just let it wander. I I go to sleep anywhere the third night. And the rest of it was pretty easy. Space is a very easy thing. It's very comfortable. We are we are um I have to say we're very used to that environment. Now a lot of people liken it to being in the womb as a baby, right? You're in the fluid and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I'm not sure about that. I just think that human beings have a history in space that we don't even know about. It's a genetic thing. And I think that uh, we're very comfortable being in space. Uh, so the rest of the flight being in space was just a joy.
2: As a pilot, is it easier to fly from 90 miles up to the moon or make a deck landing on an aircraft carrier in a crosswind on a foggy day in the North Atlantic?
3: I would not make a landing on a carrier in any weather, regardless of the wind. That's the most dangerous thing I can think of. Um, going to the moon is not safe either. I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, things could happen. But uh, you're going in one direction. You don't have to do a thing. You're going to keep going. In fact, we went because of the heating rates uh, due to the sun, we had to, we, we had to turn perpendicular to the plane of the ecliptic, which is the thing that contains all the planets, okay? We were perpendicular, and we rotated very slowly so that the sun sitting over here heated the outside of the spacecraft at a constant rate all the way around. So about every two minutes, we did a revolution. Um, we had to stop that once in a while to do a little mid-course correction, uh, I could put the numbers in the computer and then I could move to the attitude I had to go to very easy. Like flying an airplane. We had an attitude indicator just like in an airplane. And I and I had a jo- little little control stick for attitude and one over here for translation. And um, I, could, I, I could go to that point and then set up the computer to fire the engine and go whatever, five feet per second or whatever we needed to do to make that little correction. And that was easy. It was no big deal. Um, Are you just...
2: Driving right there towards the moon. Can you see it?
3: No. we didn't, Well, yeah, uh, because we were perpendicular to the plane of the ecliptic. Until we got close to the moon, I could sit in the window and I could watch the Earth drift by, and then I watched the sun drift by, and then I watched the moon drift by, okay, on the way out. As we were approaching the moon, we had to turn around backwards because we had to slow down to stay in lunar orbit, and the engine is behind us. So we had to align the engine to fire forward, Along the line of our trajectory to slow us down so we'd stay in lunar orbit. So we, when, when we got close to the Moon, we never saw the moon, until we were there, till we were in lunar orbit, we never saw the moon. And I you know I, I can, I, can I, I remember one thing that I, <laughs> always has stuck with me. I said that as the point at which I really respected mission control, because they had us in exactly the right spot. They could, if, they'd, if they'd have made a little mistake, 50,000 miles out we wouldn't have done that we might have crashed on the moon but they had us in the right spot
2: what's it like saying goodbye to the other two guys when they were going to go down to the surface
3: have a good time have fun the truth is after being cooped up with those guys for four and a half days i was really happy for them to go somewhere (laughs) so i had it all to myself and i could do whatever i wanted i actually had so much work to do that i that i worked 20 hours a day i got about four hours of sleep a night uh, i had just had so many things to do so anyway i was glad to get rid of them because that gave me a lot of room to maneuver and do whatever i needed to do and knowing that i had a very very full flight plan to follow um i was happy to get rid of them so they
2: you wave them goodbye mm-hmm. they detach go down to the moon mm-hmm. The whole do you think about them much? Are you able to see? You're not able to see them or anything. So then it's just your mission from there.
3: Yeah, I could keep up with them because if I'm in contact with mission control, we had communications. They would transmit the mission control. Mission control would transmit it back up to me. So if I'm in view of the Earth, then I can kind of keep up with what they're doing. Um, I didn't care about much about what they were doing. I mean, they're on their own. You know, I I didn't I didn't have much to do with that. I was concerned with the stuff that I was doing, which was rather important.
2: Speaking of on your own, <clears throat> lots of people like to say about you the loneliest man in history and all this kind of stuff. I mean, how far away from you were from any other human being at that point in the? You universe? know,
3: I've never, I've never calculated. I've heard thirty five hundred miles. I've heard this. I've heard that. I don't know. I have a suspicion that you know Mike Collins, who was a command module pilot on Apollo eleven. I've talked about this lots, and 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 we figured that. It was probably pretty close. For we're probably both pretty much in the same position. It's just that Guinness picked up on Apollo 15 and gave me the certificate, uh, which was kind of kind of cool. Uh, and then and then they also gave me the certificate for the for the first deep space walk, um, which was that. Now that one is real, and that's one that will always be there. They're, they'll never take that away. Being the loneliest man, being the most isolated person, we go to Mars. That's going to be shattered. I mean, somebody else will be doing that. Yeah, no question. So your job was to orbit the moon, mm-hmm. doing geology, doing scientific. Research. Right, right. Um, interesting little sideline. Um, when we got into lunar orbit the night before, well, we got in. We got in lunar orbit the day before they were going to land. Um, I put us in an orbit that was. Sixty miles high behind the moon and fifty thousand feet above the landing site. So we're about ten miles above the landing site. Dave had to fly the lunar module over Hadley Mountain to get to the landing site, and Hadley Mountain is fifteen thousand feet high. So we're thirty-five thousand feet above the top of that mountain. And we went to sleep that night and got up the next morning, and I'm look I pulled the shades out of the window, I'm looking up ahead, and I'm looking up at the top of the mountain. And I'm thinking, oh <clears throat> wow, we got a problem. So I called Houston and they said good thing you called. Uh, I said, why is that? And they said, well, we think you're getting a little close to the mountain. Oh, really? Yeah, well, I can kind of see that. Uh, what are we going to do? Well, we... where are we now? I said, uh, that, that was my question. Where are we? How, how low are we? Well, we've calculated your trajectory every time you have gone around the moon, every two hours. And the tra- your 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 altitude above that mountain has dropped considerably over the and We now have you down to like 33,000 feet plus or minus nine, and this is where I always, I get engineers and mathematicians. I nail them on this, because I tell the crowd, I said, if an engineer ever tells you a number with a plus or minus on it, you know, he does not know what he's talking about. So 9,000, so we're 33,000, 9,000 feet, that's 24,000. We're seven, eight, 9,000 feet above the top of that mountain, and I'm thinking, ooh, wow, we're getting pretty close. Going over a mountain at the moon at two miles, at 9,000, well, not even, yeah, Nine thousand feet something like that uh we could see some pretty small rocks with our eyes so very quickly got dave and jim in their in their lunar module and got them on the way and i went back to a 60 mile orbit but that was kind of exciting
2: yeah I could <laughs> and uh so what, what what was it like being up there by yourself looking out at the moon i mean what you've talked about the the things you observed but what was it like as an experience well
3: it's 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 a mixture of a lot of things i had a lot of Uh, of, uh, projects to do, which required me to think a little bit. Um, the, the low light level photography as an example, I had to stabilize the spacecraft as best I could. You can't, you can't always do it because in space you, there's nothing that, 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 uh, provides stability. I mean, if you start moving in a direction a little bit, there's no wind or anything to keep you, In in one attitude, so you're just going to keep moving. So you have to be very very careful. Set up the spacecraft to get the drift rates down as low as you can, and then take a 10 second exposure with 5000 ASA film, which is a tough thing to do. Uh, That was part of it. That takes a lot of concentration, a lot of thought. Other things, visual observations of the moon. I had a high resolution camera I, I used to. Photograph about 25% of the moon. I had a mapping camera to take pictures of about 25% of the moon. Uh, I had a series of remote sensing devices like microwave and x-ray and all those kind of things that I used to scan the surface of the moon. Uh, these things were in, in, in operation all the time. So I was always going from one to another and, and running all that stuff. Um, it kept me busy.
2: And when did you do your spacewalk?
3: On the way back home. So you say, okay.
2: So you pick. So you finish orbiting the moon. You go and pick up the guys.
3: Right, right. They come back up into lunar orbit, and um, um how
2: tricky is it to to join two well, spacecraft together? Well, we,
3: we we had to do it a certain way. Uh, part of the problem is that the lunar when the lunar module went down to the surface, it was a thirty seven thousand pound vehicle. they are little reaction control engines that they use for translation and attitude control. They're just little bitty rocket engines. Uh, and they're sized for thirty-seven thousand pounds. Those same rocket engines are on the ascent stage coming back up off the surface of the moon, which only weighs twenty-five hundred pounds. So these rocket engines are way too big uh, for precise flight of the ascent stage. Uh, once they got in orbit, a, a little, uh, just a little touch on one of the RCS quads would cause a fairly big motion. Right. So the idea was that Dave slowed down, got those motions as close to zero as he could get them, and then I did the docking from about 50 feet away. So I did the docking on that. They didn't do it. I did.
2: And did that go smoothly, or did that take a few goes? Oh, no,
3: that went, man, yeah, perfect. Yeah, I did the same thing uh, after we left Earth orbit. I uh, had to do the same docking maneuver because the lunar module uh, was stored uh, in the in, in the nose of the Saturn of the uh, S4B stage Um, and then we're sitting in front of that so it's in a hold that is protected because the lunar module was designed only to work in a vacuum in one-sixth gravity so coming off the Earth we really had to tie it down and protect it and all that but once we got on our way to the moon then I had to uh, move out from the S4B move forward uh, explosive bolts that released us go forward a little bit turn around and go back in and dock with the lunar module sitting inside. So it's
2: floating around for a while.
3: Well, it's, yeah, but but I go out and turn back, and it's pretty stable. So I had I had to go back in and, and dock with it. Um, and that, that was the first time I did it. Um, and we had no problem. And it was the same procedure uh, when I picked up the guys coming around the moon because well, now they're in an asset stage that's really, really light. So I had to be a little more careful and make sure that the docking was Pretty much on center, um, Which but was. no problem. We did it.
2: What, did the guy, did you say, hey, what's the moon like?
3: And they were like, pretty good? I no, mean, no, no, <laughs> I, I got to tell you what I, what I, my thoughts when I, when they first came back, my thoughts were, you guys are too dirty to come in my spacecraft because <laughs> they got all that lunar dust on them. So I said, go back to the lunar module, take the vacuum and get yourselves cleaned up before you come back. We never really talked much about the moon. I talked about their about their being dirty. <laughs> um, and then you
2: start heading back towards Earth, and you go for the the first deep space war Correct. in history.
3: Well, that's because we had two large cameras that are in an open bay back in the service module. They're about thirty feet in back of the spacecraft. Uh, those cameras were the ones that I used to photograph like twenty five percent of the lunar surface. They come in a in a in a, in a cassette. Uh, it's a ninety pound cassette. It's like eight inch, nine inch film. Had eleven hundred feet of it wound on this cassette. So it's a fairly big. It's you know like twenty eight, thirty inches in diameter. Weighed ninety pounds. Had to bring that back inside the command module because the only thing that survives the flight is what's inside the command module. So I had to bring those back in. So I made two trips out and brought the brought it back. And I did have a chance to put my feet in some foot restraints out there and just kind of look around. And probably the first time in history that anybody's ever been able to see both the Earth and the Moon at the same time. So I did that. It was pretty cool. Problem I had was that I had trained so well to do that uh, that we finished the whole thing in record time, and then I had no excuse to stay out there. So I had to get back in. You
2: should have yeah. said, Oh, I'm just a little, a little trickier. Yeah, I know.
3: I should have. I I should've I should have been smart enough to figure out something I could say to stay out there longer, but no, we didn't do that.
2: And I oh, is, what's going through? Are you just focused on the task in hand, or are you thinking this is pretty extra? I'm the first human being in the history of the race <sighs> to see this.
3: No, I tell you how that goes. You when you're on the flight and and all through the flight, as a matter of fact, not just that one time. Um You never really think about it too much, but you store it all away in your head and you start thinking about it after you get back home. So then it's when you relive it and how all these other ideas and I've gotten a little bit far out into the universe in my thinking uh, based on because of the flight. Um, Didn't think about it that much when I was on the flight.
2: So then when you go back to Earth, how did it change you?
3: Uh, I don't. I'm not sure it changed me. It just made me more conscious of our place in the universe, our place in the solar system, our place in the universe, the rest of the universe that you can see out there, like we're in the Milky Way galaxy, is part of that. And then you, you, you do a little study, and all of a sudden you find out that there are 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, which is our galaxy. And then you find out that there are 200 billion galaxies out there that we know of. Holy mackerel! Yeah, you go back to Carl Sagan. Um, Carl Sagan, his his big theory was that there's so many stars out there that's going to be a finite number of them that have a sun the size of our sun, and of those there's going to be a finite theory that have planetary system, and there's going to be a finite number of those that are going to be on Earth, and there's going to be a finite no, number of those that are going to have intelligent beings, intelligent life. You can't you can't escape it. There's just too many of them out there. It's got to be. So that's kind of the path I've been following. Why is it important that we keep exploring space? Because it's not so much, well, it is exploring. Uh, I think it's critically important uh, not just to go to Mars. I could care less about going to Mars. I could care less about going back to the moon. Uh, What's important is that we develop the capability to go to another Earth. And we'll do that someday. I think there's no question about it. And why do we have to do that? Because we know right now, we can calculate exactly when the sun's gonna die. When that happens, we're gonna be gone. We better be somewhere else. To me, that's the whole purpose of the space program. We don't even realize it. It's a genetic drive called survival. And that whole genetic drive is pushing us to the point where we are eventually gonna have capability to go to another Earth-like planet and survive for the species to survive.
2: When you came back, how did you make sure the whole rest of your life wasn't just a huge anticlimax?
3: Oh, gosh. I, well, OK, another lecture. Um, making a spaceflight is a skill set. It's like flying an airplane. It's like driving a car. Once you learn all the things you need to know to drive a car, after you've been driving that car for six months, you don't even think about it anymore. You just drive it, right? That's the skill set. Um, I think intellectual curiosity is a different thing so I've been much more interested since the flight in doing other things Uh, as a matter of fact I ran for political office back in the country because I, I, I tend to have a big mouth about certain things and when I say what I think then I rethink that a little bit and I say well you really ought to put your money where your mouth is so I ran for Congress that was a very stimulating intellectual thing to do I lost because I was an outsider to the party Uh, I believe that was why. Um, But since then, I've taught in college. Um, I've had my own companies. I've done R&D, invented some uh, avionics things for airplanes, Uh, went to work for the company that was going to develop our product. Um, And when I retired from them, uh, it was a company called B.F. Goodrich, by the way. Uh, When I retired from B.F. Goodrich, then I got very involved with a charity foundation, the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation, and I spent a lot of considerable amount of time supporting that and raising money. And I was chairman for seven years. And we now give out four hundred thousand dollars a year in scholarships to the best and the brightest in the country. We have this. We have the colleges that we work with pick their one or two top STEM students. We don't care what discipline they're in. And then we'll, we'll we will fund one of them, give them a check for ten thousand dollars, no strings attached. They can do anything you want with it. And I do that. And I and I worked for a couple of other charities and. And um, and and I keep going today because I, I, I like to get out and talk to school kids about STEM education because I think that's the, that, that's the thing that we've been losing in the last, I'll say the last eight, nine years. Um, it's not been important uh, to the leadership in the states. And so we're finding that uh, the students who go to college in engineering, as an example, there aren't as many of them as there used to be, and that's because they're off doing other things in there and it's not it's not it hadn't been important uh but my opinion and i think a lot of people agree uh, share it with me is that the future of civilization depends on these kids uh growing up and becoming the inventors and the innovators and the and the disciplined engineers that we're going to need to develop the technologies that are going to get us further out there Uh, it's going to come from the stem courses it's not going to come from philosophy or english or or foreign language, or any of that it's not going to come from there. It's going to come from the STEM courses, and that technology is something that we critically need in the world. Not just not just the U.S., but everywhere. I would love to see us uh, very involved as an example with the Chinese. I think that's a mistake that we're not uh, that we're not heavily involved with them uh, because they got technology um, that is pretty much parallel with the kind of technology we got in the U.S. And it should be because we've Taught most of them here in England. You got the same thing, uh, but I think STEM is a, is a critically important thing, and I spend a lot of time. In fact, that's why I'm here. Uh, when we leave, uh, we'll be doing talks all over England uh, to schools and high schools, talking about STEM education and trying to motivate that kind of thing. And so that's that's the intellectual part of what I like to do, and I think that's much more important than learning a skill set. Do you want to tell us about the book? Hmm. Well, the book, um, this book uh, we wrote in, 19, in 2011. I was fortunate that uh, the Smithsonian Institution published it. And, uh, and they're very difficult to uh, get to publish a book. Um, Falling to Earth. It sounds to me like this yeah. is
2: a gravity book. From what you're Yeah, thinking. kind of. Okay. No,
3: uh, Falling to Earth, it has has to do with a lot of things that happened on the flight and some, some bad things, uh, and not only coming back to Earth, but some bad things that happened on our flight uh, that had to do with postal covers. And uh, so that's all part of this book.
2: Was there ever a moment on the flight when you thought you were not going to get back?
3: No, that was not an issue at all. Uh, so anyway, I wrote the book, and, and it turns out that it's the bestseller that the Smithsonian's ever published. That doesn't surprise a, me. There are over 80,000 copies of that that are out now. And, uh, and as a matter of fact, based on this, they've asked me to do a sequel. So we're in the process of doing that now. And in the sequel, I'm going to talk about Sumerians. Uh I'm going to talk they about... They go to space, the Sumerian to, space program. <laughs> I'm going to talk about the universe. I'm going to talk about other planets. I'm going to talk about the fact that we are... Somebody asked me. I did. I did show you. Some. Oh, doing ITV the other day. They asked me about. Uh, did I believe in aliens? And I said, sure. Oh, what do you mean you believe in aliens? I said, Have you ever seen one? I said, Yeah, sure. Where have you ever seen an alien? I say every time I look in the mirror. Because I happen to believe we came from somewhere else. That's a whole different. Ah. See if if we're establishing a station space program, so that we can escape here when we have to, to survive, who's to say somebody else out there a million years advanced on us hadn't done the same thing and come here?
2: And why are you doing this tour right at the
3: moment? Okay, basically, I'm here for World Space Week. Uh, we did uh, uh, New Scientist Live for the last few days, uh, promoting space and selling a few books, but, but bringing people into the British Interplanetary Society booth uh, so that we can... Uh, promote interplanetary society. I will be doing a tour around the UK over the next, well, actually the next 15 days, um, promoting STEM, STEM courses to schools and high schools. Uh, I'll be speaking at Sheffield uh, University, uh, speaking STEM, going to the National Science Museum. Uh, I think in a couple of days to talk about the same sort of thing. Um, I'm, 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 I'm sort of evangelizing education, if you will, because I think it's so important. And that's what we're doing.
2: I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favor to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's tough out there, law of the jungle out there, and I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you.